Some time ago, I had a conversation with a Marxist economist from China. He was coming to the end of a Fulbright Fellowship here in Boston. And I asked him if he had learned anything that was surprising or unexpected. And without any hesitation, he said, yeah. I had no idea how critical religion is to the functioning of democracy. The reason why democracy works, he said, is not because the government was designed to oversee what everybody does, but rather democracy works because most people, most of the time, voluntarily choose to obey the law. And in your past, most Americans attended a church or a synagogue every week, and they were taught there by people who they respected. My friend went on to say that Americans followed these rules because they had come to believe that they weren't just accountable to society, they were accountable to God. My Chinese friend heightened a vague but nagging concern I've harbored inside that as religion loses its influence over the lives of Americans, what will happen to our democracy? Where are the institutions that are going to teach the next generation of Americans that they too need to voluntarily choose to obey the laws? Because if you take away religion, you can't hire enough police. I thought that was a rather poignant um, video to show today because usually the Sunday after Christmas we have so many different people at our church, whatever your, wherever your church might be, who are visiting family, visiting friends, in town, on vacation, whatever it might be. And so often we forget that each one of those local churches, regardless of affiliation, denomination, whatever it might be, each one of those churches is there to connect people to God. Maybe in different ways, we, we do worship a little differently in some of those churches, but really, we're all about the same thing, and that's connecting people to God. And when our country forgets that, when our country replaces that with whatever it replaces it with, then we're no better than communist China. And that's what this young student had discovered at Harvard, of all places, Harvard Business School. He maybe learned a little bit about business administration, but he taught that professor a great deal about who we are as a country and what democracy really means. So let's not forget that today or in the future. Let's, let's open with prayer. God, I just thank you for this day, this gorgeous day you've given us. I thank you for calling us here from different parts of the country, different parts of your church family to to come together and worship you today. It's what you have ordained for us to do corporately on this particular day. It's your idea. So we come joyfully bringing praises to you, and we know that you inhabit the praises of your people, so you're here with us today. Come, Holy Spirit, and, and just fill this place. Fill each one of us 
with your presence, with your peace, with your love, and yes, with your power. Lord, we come to a close of a year which has brought uh, a lot of different things to a lot of different people within our own church family. Some great and celebratory, some not so great, and we, we gather around with one another to, uh, to uh, encourage one another in those deep times. Some losses, some losses of loved ones and, and family friends, and we don't understand sometimes why those things have to happen, but we trust you. And we know that there is a, a new year coming ahead, that you've already planned that out for us. So we wait with anticipation to see what your plan for our lives will be in this coming year. God, I pray for all the, the uh, uh, public safety officers, the policemen, firefighters, not just in New York City, but all around the world, all, all around the country. Uh, particularly in our own community here in, in the county and in the city of North Myrtle Beach, that you would, you would surround them with your protection, that you would uh, allow us to, to feel that we need to go up to them and say thank you. Thank you for what you do. Without them, uh, where would we be? We thank you for this church for the growth of this church over the years and for what lies ahead in 2015. And we pray that you will be ordering our steps, that we won't take a step without checking with you, without knowing that, that this is the path you have ordained for us. And we look forward with, again, with anticipation to see where you're going to take us during this year. We know that as long as we hold up your word, we call on your Holy Spirit that you're here, present, and moving powerfully among us. We know we can trust you when all else fails. And now may the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, there should be a law. There should be a law uh, where we don't have three different church services occurring within a seven-day period of time. Uh, that makes it tough up here. Uh, it makes it good for you. It makes it tough up here. So I'm going to tell you that, uh, um, well, I knew that we were going to have a special guest today that, was, that, that shows up every New Year's, and, uh, and I couldn't do the message that I did last New Year's because he would know that. So uh, I had to go back in the archives a little bit and pull out something that we had done before 2012. Some of you weren't even, uh, Renovation Church wasn't even on your radar screen in 2012, but uh, 
a message that I did in 2012, and I reworked it a little bit so that it would fit uh, what we're doing today. Let me tell you that starting next week, we're going to launch into a series uh, called Exponential Living. Exponential Living. We're going to look at what God has in store for us in 2015. Followed up shortly after that series with a look at who we are as a church, what, what, what we believe as a church, where we're going as a church. I mean, we've been doing this five, six years now. We need to know where we're going next. Uh, this is our year of small groups. We're going to make small groups happen this year, and we're going to count on you people uh, to make that happen for us. You are the ones that can make small groups effective, can make them uh, a wonderful experience for people in our church and outside of our church. So I'll be looking to you for help in, in the coming year. But now I want to go to finish up this Christmas season. I left out the Advent stuff. I left some of the uh, decorations up because we aren't quite through. You've probably got your tree still up at home. Um, we aren't quite through with Christmas. But what are we taking away from Christmas? What's this Christmas thing all about anyway? Last week we had an opportunity to look at Mary. Maybe a different look at Mary than we do in our Reformed churches very often. Uh, this week I want to look at Jesus himself. And I want to begin where the Gospels begin, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read, you probably memorized the scripture, I don't know, Matthew 1, 1 through 17. I'm going to read it and you can follow along on the screen. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So you've memorized this, haven't you? Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, who, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. You with me so far? David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Those of you that are going to Israel with me or have been before, we are going to Hezekiah's tunnel and walk through that thing. Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Still with me? After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. 
Uh, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, who rebuilt the temple after the exile. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mothan. Mothan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. And you can go home this afternoon and figure those out. You can mark them up. You'll see there's 14, 14, 14. Amazing how that works out. Now, I need an award for being able to pronounce all those names, and, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to next time. I learned something in seminary that was a little trick, and that is uh, it doesn't matter how I pronounce them. As long as I do it with authority, you'll think it's right. So... <laughs> If you're reading scripture like that, just do it. Just do it, you know, and it, it doesn't really matter. Because these are, a lot of these uh, names, these particular ones were in Greek, but in the Old Testament, a lot of the names are listed and they don't have vowels in them. So we don't have a clue how they were pronounced. We have to make it up. In the Western world, you see, tracing our roots provides a sense of identity, which many find exciting and encouraging. We were, we were in Charlotte Christmas Day, and Karen's brother, um, uh, one of her older brothers, sat down with Ancestry.com, and he had been working in there, and he was pulling up this and this and this and this about their family, and it, uh, it went all the way back to England, and they were real proud of that. Can you imagine going all the way back to Abraham? In more traditional societies, such as parts of Africa, or the Pacific from Hawaii all the way over to New Zealand, family histories and family trees, they're a vital part of who you are. They are who you are. In a smaller sense, this should remind us of what's going on here, here at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. You see, to the average person who thinks for the first time, like many of you will, I'm going to challenge you. You'll sit down at the beginning of the year and start reading through the Bible. Well, maybe you'll read through the New Testament because reading through the Bible is, is too much, you know, but you, you possibly could read through the New Testament in the first year. And you open it up to Matthew and you start seeing Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Judah, Judah, Perez, Zerah, uh, and then you get into the long names after that, and it's like, I'm not so sure I want to be reading this stuff. Maybe next year. Average person is puzzled when he sees these names on that very first page, this long list of names that he or she has never heard of nor can he pronounce. I'm going to encourage you, as I did last year, to use the beginning of 2015 to start reading through the Bible and have some help with it. And I think the best um, 
daily uh, devotional read through the Bible that you can get, some of you people out here will, will say, yes, that is, is from Holy Trinity Brompton. Uh, you'll go to www.htb, htb.org backslash B-I-O-Y, Bible in one year. And the remarkable thing about it is you don't have to do a thing. It comes to you. It comes to your computer. It comes to your smartphone, your iPad, every day. It's there for you. I love it. I, I, I read through them every day, sometimes even before I get out of bed. Uh, a reading from the Old Testament, a reading from the New Testament, a reading from Psalms, and then a little bit of commentary about what all this means. How many of you used that last year? Anybody? Quite a few of you took me at my word. You will, you will love it once you get into it. It's so, it's so easily done, and yet it's, um, it may take 10 minutes, right? Maybe 10 minutes. Is that it, a little longer? Well, I read pretty slow. I, okay, 15 minutes. I, it doesn't take me more than 15 minutes to do it. So, okay. But it's important for us not to think that, that reading a list like this is a waste of time. God doesn't put names in his word here just to put them in. Every name in here is important, even if you go to the book of Numbers and you start reading those names in there. There's a reason those names are there. Those people are important to God. For many centuries, ancient and modern, and most certainly in the Jewish world of Matthew's time, this genealogy was the equivalent of a drum roll or a a fanfare of trumpets, let's say, or whatever it might be that would call your attention to, something is coming, something's coming here, listen. Any first century Jew would find this family tree impelling, impressive and compelling. It's kind of like we just went through this Christmas season, and many of you probably went to a Christmas parade somewhere. And we would stand on the street, rain or shine, you know, daytime, nighttime, whatever it might be. And we watched the dignitaries ride by in their convertibles, and then we watched the, the uh, uh, beauty queens in other convertibles, and then we see the bands come along and the majorettes and the, the floats and more floats and more bands and more majorettes. And, and what are we waiting for? We're waiting for Santa Claus to come. Where is Santa Claus? Where is Santa Claus? At the end, and we know he's at the end. We know he's coming at the very end. All of this is just a precursor to what's coming at the end. Matthew's arranged the names to, to make his point even clearer than that. Most Jews telling the story of Israel's ancestry would begin with Abraham. I mean, that's a good father, Abraham. Some of them might try to go back to Adam, like if you read the genealogy and 
in Luke or some other places, you, you'll, you'll see they trace back to Adam. But most would begin with Abraham, but only a select few people during the first century would be able to trace their own line all the way back through King David or all the way up through King David. And even fewer would be able to continue from Solomon through the other kings of Judah all the way to the time of the exile. And there's a reason for that, mostly because the kings that had been ruling them for the past 200 years were not from David's family. They didn't, they didn't belong in the family tree, if you will. They were from the outside. Herod the Great, for example, had no royal blood at all. And he was only a portion Jewish. He wasn't fully Jewish. He was a military commander who just saw the opportunity to, to become king. The Romans liked him, so he became a king to further uh, the Roman uh, uh, agenda there in the Middle East. But there were some who knew that they were descended from this line of true ancient kings. Some of the few. To list those names would be to make a political statement. And you wouldn't want to make a political statement like that with Herod on the throne. You wouldn't want his spies overhearing you, boasting that your lineage goes all the way back to King David and all the way back to Abraham. But that's exactly what Matthew does here on Jesus' behalf. And to further emphasize that Jesus isn't just one member in this long line of family, but actually the goal of the whole list that Matthew lists here, Matthew arranges that genealogy into three groups of 14 names, just like he tells us in verse 17. The birth of Jesus, Matthew's saying, is precisely what Israel had been waiting for for over 2,000 years. This is, this is what you've been waiting for. The parade's been taking place, and here comes, not Santa Claus, but Jesus. And there's particular markers along the way that he would use to help emphasize the story. Abraham, of course, the founding father to whom God made great promises. He would be given all the land of Canaan and all the nations. Every nation would be blessed through his family. David was the great king to whom once again God made promises promises of future lordship over the whole world. He mentions the Babylonian exile. It was a time when it seemed that all of those promises that had been given were lost forever, drowned in the sea of Israel's own sin and God's judgment on them. But the prophets of the exile promised that God would again restore Abraham's people, and David's royal line. They, they prophesied this. The long years that followed were seen by many as a continuing exile. Remember 
when uh, um, our monologue said it had been 400 years since God had spoken. And it seemed like an exile to the people, still waiting for God to deliver Israel from sin and judgment. Now, here in the book of Matthew, the first chapter, now is the moment, Matthew's saying, for all of this to come together, all of this to happen. The child who comes at the end of this line, at the end of this list, this genealogy, is God's anointed, the long-awaited Messiah coming to fulfill all the layers and all the levels of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. But Matthew also realizes and tells us that it's going to happen in a very strange way. It happened in a strange way. He's about to tell his readers how Mary, Jesus' mother, had become pregnant, not through her fiancé Joseph, but through the Holy Spirit. That's what we looked at last week, remember. So Matthew adds to his list of reminders of strange ways that God had worked already in the royal family, this account of the birth of Christ. He had already told us that Judah, uh, who treated his, about Judah, who treated his daughter-in-law Tamar as a prostitute, Boaz being the son of the Jericho prostitute Rahab, and David, committing adultery with the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. These people were already in the family line. How could this possibly be the line for the Messiah? If God can work in these bizarre circumstances, Matthew seems to be saying, just watch what he's going to do now. Billions, literally billions of Christ followers have read this genealogy as the beginning of their own exploration of who Jesus was and who Jesus is. This, Matthew is saying, is both the fulfillment of 2,000 years of God's purposes and promises and, at the same time, something quite new, quite different, quite unexpected. And... God still works like that today, doesn't he? He loves to work in the unexpected, keeping his promises, displaying his character, and yet always ready with surprises for those who can learn to trust him. So we read on. Verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, 
because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. This is, this is one of those portions of Scripture that you kind of have, have to scratch your head. The story of the birth of Jesus. We see it here in Matthew's gospel through the eyes of Joseph. Last week, we looked at it through Mary's eyes in the gospel of Luke. Different accounts, some different things we learn, but we don't have any problem at all bringing them in line as the same story. It's like, it's like two, wit, two eyewitnesses that see a bank robbery. And this one sees somebody uh, six foot six, 195 pounds in a in a a black sweater and light pants. And this one sees somebody five foot five in uh, black pants and and a white top. I mean, it doesn't matter what their stories are, and as the police bring them together and kind of debrief them, uh, the stories kind of begin to come together. But, But the important thing is, there was a bank robbery. Same outcome. And the central fact is the same in both Matthew and Luke's Gospels. But instead of Luke's picture that we looked at last week of that excited Galilean girl learning that she would give birth to God's Messiah and singing and dancing, Matthew shows us the story through sober Joseph discovering that his fiancée is pregnant. The only point where the two stories come close to one another is when the angel says to Joseph, as Gabriel had said to Mary, don't be afraid. And that's an important point for us too, especially if you're new to your faith. If this thing is new to you and you want to try to read through the Bible for the, first, the New Testament for the first time this year, or you find yourself here today seeking to find out more about this Jesus and who he was and why everybody is talking about him at this time of year. Both fear and skepticism are normal at this point. Ask those questions. It's okay for you to ask those questions. Ask us. Ask God as you read the Bible. Ask him to reveal the truth to you. For centuries now, many opponents of Christianity and even even some devout Christians themselves, Thomas Jefferson, for example, have felt that these stories are embarrassing and unnecessary and maybe even untrue. So Thomas Jefferson just cuts that little part out of his Bible because it couldn't be explained. They would say that miracles happen. Yeah, miracles. We've seen miracles happen. We've heard of it. Remarkable healings. Yeah, perhaps that. 
There's ways of explaining them too. But not babies born without human fathers. I mean, really, that's taking this whole thing too far. Surely Matthew, with his very Jewish perspective on everything, he would hardly invent such a thing as this or copy it from someone else unless he really believed it to be true. What about Luke? <laughs> Luke. Luke was a doctor, a physician. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, he would know if it were not true, wouldn't he? He certainly wouldn't write about it. Matthew and Luke are telling this story because they know that the rumors have started to circulate. Both of their Gospels were written about 60 A.D. Uh, Matthew may be a little earlier, but around 60 A.D. And these rumors have started to circulate. Can, could this possibly be true? I mean, a virgin birth. Uh, who's going to believe that? And they want to set the record straight. Matthew nor Luke doesn't ask us to take the story all by itself. They ask us to see it in the light both of the entire history of Israel, looking at the entirety of what God has done, how He's always present, how He's, uh, he's always working through and in His people, sometimes in very surprising ways, and more particularly of the subsequent story of Jesus himself. What happened with him after this birth? So that's why in today, instead of having a big idea, I have a big question on there. Ask yourself this. Does the rest of the story and the impact of Jesus on the world and countless of individuals within it ever since make it more or less likely that Jesus was indeed conceived by a special act of the Holy Spirit. Look at all the things that happened before, all the prophecies. And then think of the accounts of what Jesus did while he was here. Are we more or less likely to believe that it was a virgin birth? That's the question that every one of us has to wrestle with and come to answer for ourselves. But Matthew wouldn't want us to stop with that question. He wants to tell us more about who Jesus was and is, kind of in the time-honored Jewish tradition, by special names. He tells us his special names, and Matthew mentions two of them in this very passage. The name Jesus. It was a popular name at the time for boys to be named Jesus. In Hebrew, it would have been Joshua. And Joshua, of course, was the, the one who took over after Moses, actually led the Israelites into the land of Canaan. Joshua. Jesus means, he tells us, 
He who saves. We read the song today, or sang the song today. He who saves, he who rescues, he who ransoms. That's what Jesus means. That's what Joshua means. Yeshua, Hamashiach, the Hebrews would say. Jesus, the Messiah. Isa in Arabic. Uh, Esu in Nepali. He will rescue God's people, not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin. He will rescue God's people, not just from the exile that they suffered in Babylon, but from the exile of their own hearts and their own lives. So Jesus, Yeshua, was a very common name. A lot of boys at that time would have been called Yeshua. But not this other name, not Emmanuel. It it wasn't a name that was given to anyone else, perhaps because it would say more about a child than anyone would dare say normally. Emmanuel. You know what it means. It means God with us. So Matthew's entire gospel is framed out in this theme, God with us. We go to Matthew 4.23, and, and Matthew records Jesus went to all the villages proclaiming the gospel of the good news of the kingdom and healing people and telling them that the kingdom of God is near. Matthew 9.35, it says, Jesus went through all the villages proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and healing everybody of whatever their infirmities were and telling them that the kingdom of God is near. God with us. The first chapter um, of the book of Matthew, verse 22 and 23, says this. Now all this happened, after after we have that account of Jesus born, now all this happened in order to make what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah come true. A virgin will become pregnant and will have a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in the very first chapter of Matthew, we have God with us. In the very last chapter of Matthew, Matthew 28, uh, that uh, great commission passage concludes with this, verse 19 of, of Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what's in a name? The two names, Jesus 
Emmanuel, taken together, express the entire meaning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus, God's actions are aimed at rescuing us, saving us, ransoming us from a helpless plight. We, we can't save ourselves. He had to come to save us. And Emmanuel, God is present with his people today. He doesn't intervene from a distance out there somewhere in the, in the starry sky. He's with us. We know through the Holy Spirit, he indwells us. God's active always in our lives. Sometimes... Sometimes in the most unexpected ways. This is the Emmanuel. This is the Jesus whose story Matthew tells. This is the Emmanuel. This is the Jesus who comes to us today when all other human possibilities have run out. We've tried everything. We're desperate, and he comes to us, offering new and startling ways forward in the fulfillment of his promises by, by his powerful love and by his grace. That's what's in a name, Jesus. So happy new year to you. Take the name of Jesus Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for your word, never changing, ever true. I thank you for the beauty of a passage that's seemingly out of place here in in a gospel and how you've used it to not only remind your your people Israel, but remind us that you've been at work from creation. Your plan was solid. None of these things were surprises to you. Nothing that happens to us today is a surprise to you. God, as we call on you during this hour, Send your Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us to overflowing with your love, with your compassion, your mercy, your grace, your peace, your comfort. Most of all, with your power so that we can accomplish the things that that you have for us as individuals to accomplish. We can't do it on our own. It's only through your power. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke the bread, saying, Friends, this is my body that is broken you. And after the meal, he took a cup and poured wine in, saying, this cup is the new covenant 
It's in my blood that's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you remember my death until I come. During this season, I, I like to say, you know, so many people, particularly during this season, drink to forget. We're commanded to drink to remember what Jesus did for us, for each one of us. As the servers come, I'm going to ask you to take a time to, to sort of sort out your life as we come to the close of this year. Is your relationship with, with Jesus where you want it to be? More importantly, is it where God wants it to be? Are there things standing in the way? Things that you've done? that you know you shouldn't have done or things that, that you know he wanted you to do and you did not do them for some reason? Talk to him about those things just now. Agree with him that, yeah, you, these, are, these are errors on your part. The, the scriptures call them sins. Confess your sins to him right now. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, whatever they might be, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. Speak them to Him, and He'll take them away. That's why Jesus came. He came to save. He came to rescue. He came to ransom you and me. The servers uh, have juice here at each of the stations. We use wine. If you choose not to use wine and want juice, there's juice available at any of these uh, stations. The baskets are for your connect cards um, and for your offerings. We have ministry team members on both sides who would love to pray with you about any concern that's going on in your life right now. Nothing, nothing is too small to take to Him, nor is anything too large. He's the God of the impossible. So come, won't you, this morning to this table of renewal as we get ready to start a new year in the Lord. It's his table. He's calling you by name. Come.